Welcome to the Challenge Podcast. My name is Bram McCartney, founder and director of the 38 Challenge, a warrior workout in memory of my brother, Captain Matthew Brewer, in order to raise awareness for mental health and veterans and athletes. On February 19th, 2021, Captain Matthew Brewer committed suicide due to the invisible scars he endured through a lifelong mission of serving and protecting others. The Challenge Podcast allows warriors to show vulnerability in order to empower others to seek help and to do the same. This podcast at times might seem uncomfortable, and while that's because showing vulnerability is one of the most challenging yet strongest things that someone can do. If you or a loved one are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please contact the suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255. And now for this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to episode 10 of the Challenge Podcast. Today we have a very very special guest, John McCaskill. John, why don't you give a second and introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure, Brent. I'd, I'd appreciate that. Um, yeah, John McCaskill. Um, I am a retired uh, Navy guy living out in Colorado Springs. Uh, served in the Navy for 24 years, 17 of which was with the with the SEAL teams. But now I'm working to teach mindfulness and meditation to as many people as will listen, because I have my own personal story of how I came to be a mindfulness and meditation practitioner. And I attribute mindfulness meditation to saving my life quite literally. And now I feel it's my duty and obligation to pay it forward. Uh, I live out here in Colorado Springs with my beautiful bride, also a Navy veteran and, and a Coast Guard veteran. She's both. And, uh, and then three young children. I've got a five-year-old, a three-year-old and a 10-month-old. So we've got a, uh, a busy household. Full we live house. on a small farm out here. Yeah, 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 full house. And it's uh, it's a farm, quite literally. We've got two horses, a dog, a couple cats and chickens. So it's a lot of fun, though. Absolutely. And a beautiful family, uh, a beautiful man you are in your story. And we're definitely going to get into mindfulness, vulnerability, your story, and how that changed your life. But, man, I've been busy. I've been stressed. I know this is kind of how you like to start your podcast. Can you walk us through just a quick couple minute mindfulness practice before we get started? Oh yeah, dude. I love it. I love where your head's at. Let's do it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, man. So I'm going to strip my hat off here and show you my nasty hat hair, but I won't do that. uh, I will not be doing that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. So for your listeners, uh, go ahead and get into a comfortable position, whatever is comfortable and safe for you as you're listening. And by safe, I mean, if you're driving, obviously we want to keep our eyes closed or sorry, keep our eyes open. We don't want to close our eyes. We want to stay safe. So whatever is safe and comfortable for you, go ahead and get into that. For me personally, I like planting my feet firmly on the ground. I sit in a chair personally. And then I put my hands palm up on my lap. If that's comfortable and if that's something you want to try out, I invite you to do that. Otherwise, whatever works for you. And then close your eyes if it is safe and comfortable to do so. And let's bring our attention to our breath our attention and our focus to our breath, noticing the physical sensations of breathing. Not forcing anything, but just noticing, noticing how the air feels when it enters your body, where it is that it enters your body. 
and noticing what it does as it enters your body. Noticing your lungs expanding, your lungs pushing down into your diaphragm, diaphragm pushing your belly out, your chest expanding as well. And then the breath out, the reverse happening, the diaphragm pushing up into your lungs, making space for that stomach, your belly shrinking, your lungs shrinking, your chest shrinking. Just note the physical sensations associated with all that is happening there. Note again how the air feels. As it enters the body, it may be slightly cooler, maybe even a little bit drier. And as you exhale, warmer and maybe have a tiny bit of moisture in that air as you breathe out. Then just breathe naturally, letting your thoughts go where they go, your emotions come and go. And then let's come back, back to the anchor of our breath again. And imagine it as just that, an anchor and your body, and your mind, your thoughts are connected to that anchor and that may drift off for a short time, but then you can bring it back to that anchor, that center point. And for this meditation, we're using our breath. So just bring it back, bring it back to the breath. Don't beat yourself up for your mind wandering off. Don't get frustrated. Your mind wandering off several times during a meditation is perfectly natural. It's actually where the magic happens, coming back over and over and over. So we are back, back at our breath, and we'll wrap it up with one deep cleansing breath together. Begin by breathing out as much air as you can. Emptying your lungs. Deep breath in through your nose, expanding and filling those lungs, holding at the top and releasing nice and slow, slow and relaxed. And now on your own time, start to bring some movement back into your body. If your eyes were closed, start to blink them open. And that's uh, that's a simple grounding meditation. And you may notice for you, Brent, and for your listeners, you may notice a little difference in how you feel compared to how you felt at the beginning. You're uh, tapped into that parasympathetic nervous system, calmed yourself down, calmed your body down, calmed your nervous system down, calmed your mind down. So that's what that's why I do it. First of all, I know the listeners feel the same way. I feel incredible. I wish I could start every conversation and and every public speaking and whatever it is, I wish we could start with that, right? I think that would- that's that's why in my uh, we do it in our meditation or sorry in our podcast, Men Talking Mindfulness. Uh, that's how we start it, and that's how we finish it because of that because it does get ourselves and our guests settled, 
but then I also do it in my public speaking. Literally when I get up on stage, before I say a single word, I put the people through a meditation and kind of catch them off guard. And then I'm like, oh yeah. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about. But it's not just for them. It's not just for them. It's for no. me too. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? If I'd got up on stage and was like, could meditate before I, yeah. So yeah. I, it's big. I started meditating, you know, a little bit before the first time you and I spoke and met, but yeah, after that conversation and, you know, getting to, to follow you and, and following your podcast and your story, man, I've, that is an essential part of how I start every morning now. Awesome. And it has been one of the most transformative parts of my life for sure. Without a doubt. It's, it's wild, man. It's, they should teach it in schools. Yeah. Like, they should all know it. They absolutely should. And I think there's a great tie in between the message of, of the, the challenge podcast and vulnerability and mindfulness. And we'll get into that later. Yeah. But John, if you could start us off, you know, what does vulnerability mean to you? Yeah. Vulnerability, uh, it gets a bad rap. I think vulnerability, people often assume vulnerability means weakness. Um, I can't think of a single sign of strength or a sign of courage that is exhibited without being vulnerable. Um, you know, we often talk about heroes that do incredibly heroic things on the battlefield or elsewhere. And we're like, well, that's just courage. Well, the instance before that courage is displayed, there's a huge amount of vulnerability that is displayed. And I think vulnerability and courage and strength, they're all tied together. You can't have, you can't have true strength, true courage without vulnerability. Now you can feign it, you can feign strength, you can feign courage, but eventually that energy that you're expending to fake it is, is going to exhaust you one. And then two, eventually it's going to show through that you're faking it. Your, your, your true colors are going to shine through. So why not be honest and open and vulnerable? That's what to me vulnerable means. It means being open and honest and bearing yourself to potential harm, potential ridicule, uh, potential um, hate from others. But in doing it, you're, you're being strong, you're being courageous. Absolutely. And your experience on the battlefield, I'm sure I know that you're seen as a, a brave man, a, a hero, someone who's courageous as a captain in arguably the most respected, the most dangerous group of individuals in the world being a captain there. Where did vulnerability play into your leadership as your time um, with the SEALs? I think it was uh, um, coming back to that feigning piece. I think for a while there was quite a bit of that false bravado, um, acting as though I did not have any kind of chink in my armor. Um, and that's where I did get exhausted. Um, and then when I was finally, um, open and honest with my people about what I had going on in my life, what I needed in my life, what I, um, what I had done wrong in my life, I saw that the level of respect 
was a lot higher because they saw me as a fellow human being and not as not as somebody up here over them in the hierarchy of the organization, but as a, as a fellow human being and we could relate to one another. And I think that's a huge piece of leadership is, is being able to relate to the people you're leading and more importantly for them to be able to relate to you. Um, so vulnerability was absolutely critical in me becoming a better leader. And it's a huge part of what I teach today uh, in some of my executive coaching and leadership coaching that I do is being vulnerable and learning how to be vulnerable because it's not, it's not a natural thing. No, it's we not. We want it's, to defend ourselves. It's a skill, you know, it's, it's it is. A, and it's a muscle. It's something you have to train. Right. 100%. So, so what did the captain McCaskill before that, when you were putting on this act of someone who, you know, couldn't be hurt. And then what did you look like after you started showing vulnerability as a leader, maybe an example or, just how your mind frame kind of switched. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I was, I was never a, a Navy captain. I was a Navy commander. Commander, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I, yeah, I'm no, sorry. I'll, I'll good. I'll yeah, good. Yeah. I just want to make sure. I don't mind you calling me captain, but yeah, I just want to yeah. make sure your audience doesn't think that. Um, but I can tell you, um, so Operation Red Wings in, uh, in Afghanistan in 2005, um, I, I had several close friends that uh, were lost in that operation. And I remember that I went back um, after learning that, uh, learning the fate of my friends, I went back to my little hooch, which is basically like this wooden hut that's divided into wooden cubicles that we all sleep in. And I went back into my hooch and uh, I had never lost a close friend on the battlefield prior to that. And I went back into my hooch and I thought to myself, I was like, well, I've got to be this battle hardened leader uh, of my men. I can't go out there and show them that I'm, I'm sad. I can't go out there and show them that I'm, I'm weak. And I, I went back closed like the door. It wasn't even much of a door. It was more like this rickety piece of plywood uh, to my hooch and uh, crawled on my bed, grabbed the pillow and stuffed it in my face and and cried my eyes out and then uh and then got got up after a few minutes kind of dusted myself off walked out of that hooch and acted like nothing had ever happened and and continued thinking about the mission what's next which is important i mean we have to think about that but i didn't display any kind of emotion in front of everyone um years later a lot of those emotions that i pent up um, came back to bite me in my, in my own life. Um, and I think it also caused me to be a kind of a poor leader or less, lesser than I could have been. Finally, I, I got onto, a, a, um, a track that I feel guided me to mindfulness and meditation mm -hmm. and the mindfulness and meditation allowed me to do some of that deep introspective work, being alone by myself, seeing some of the demons that I hadn't ever faced before. Um, and then shedding that, that false armor and coming in. And I remember after I started meditating regularly, actually prior to, I was starting to see uh, a counselor, a mental health counselor, mm -hmm. but I was afraid to tell anybody about it. Yep. And then he actually introduced me to mindfulness and meditation. And I used to have this big calendar. I don't know if, if this is a visual podcast as well, Brent, Brent, uh, or we can, just, uh, 
yeah, no, uh, yeah. but, but I used to have this big calendar behind, behind me at work and it, uh, I labeled my mental health, um, appointments on there. Yeah. And I, I used to have some of my guys come up to me and they're like, Hey, Hey boss, are, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm actually better than I've been in years and decades. Awesome. And, awesome. and uh, awesome. I'm going to go see somebody about mental health. And they're like, well, yeah, mental health, it, it's up there on your calendar. I was just a little worried about you. I was like, well, if I wrote, you know, physical training or weight, weight room time or a run on my calendar, would you be worried about me? And they were like, no, we wouldn't be because you're yeah. taking care of your physical fitness. I was like, well, this is me taking care of my mental fitness. Of course. So, so, um, I was being vulnerable and showing that I was, um, going and getting that mental health support and that allowed them to see that it's okay, that it's okay. So it changed me as a leader, but it also changed me as a person, um, in their eyes. And again, coming back to that, being able to relate to one another, I think that was the, the key difference in, in my career, I, I kind of tried to hide my crying, tried to hide the fact that I was sad about the loss of a friend, which is perfectly natural to be sad about that. Absolutely. And then, you know, late years later, I was, I was able to share that. And I share that now to this day, I'm still sad about it, but it, you know, I'm, I'm okay with being sad about it. Being For, sad is a part of life. Absolutely. And man, that story I think is a perfect example of this podcast and why we're doing it. Uh, a commander, a badass dude, you know, someone who used to not embrace vulnerability and used to think that vulnerability was weakness, right? And crying in front of other people makes you less of a man. Someone changes right. his his entire perspective. So did that moment lead some of the men that you led to them getting mental health help? Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've had, uh, I've had numerous guys tell me that because I had that on my calendar and because I was open to talk about it, they sought out their own counselors and they got help where they needed it. So yeah, it did. It made a big difference. Absolutely. And for the people listening, you know, this isn't someone in your, in your office space who, you know, you think, Oh, they're going to go. These are the most badass people in the world again. And they are taking priority of their mental health in writing on their calendars. You know, I'm going to go get a mental workout today. And that's right. And John, just being vulnerable with you, man, like, I'm doing, like you said, vulnerability is a muscle that we work and mental health is, is not a destination. It's, it's a journey, a lifelong journey. And I had a conversation with my mother and she was like, you need to go seek counseling because although mm -hmm. you're, although you're doing, and I tell, I'm on this podcast, right. And I'm telling people you should go get counseling, but I don't do it. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, I got this podcast yeah. and like, I, I like, you know, I talk to people about my feelings, but it's like, it's not the same thing. And there's, there's things that, you know, I'm not comfortable sharing on social media yet that I should go seek. So when I had that conversation with my mom and I, and I realized that I was being not the best leader that I could be, and I was being hypocritical in that sense too. And I made the promise to her and to myself that I would start doing that. Um, yeah. You know. It's tough to take your own medicine at times, it is, you know, eat yeah. your own dog food. But, um, once like I, I go to counseling still, uh, you know, I'm 44 years old. I've been out of the Navy for two years and I still do counseling. Uh, I think it is just like going to the gym. It, it helps you to take care of your mental health. It's mental fitness. If we call it mental fitness, we're going to yes. change the narrative, yes. right? Yeah. Um, so going to a, a mental fitness appointment instead of a mental health appointment. And uh, that that's that's critical to 
your own well-being. It's critical to your well-being of your your friends and family around you. I mean, because people they can feed off of that. They can sense when you're off. Uh, you know, I've got kids, I've got to be on, I've, I've got to take care of myself. I've got a beautiful wife that I want to take care of. And, and she can tell if I'm off. So I've got to, I've got to do the things that I know help me to be prepared mentally to, to be a father, to be a husband, to be a friend, to be a colleague. So. Absolutely. And I, and I hear the most, the people who understand mental, mental health and vulnerability, the most, every single one of them puts it that way. And it's mental exercise. It's because right. what's more manly than going to the gym and, you know, throwing up 315? Nothing. What's more <laughs> man, you know what I'm saying? What's more manly than going right. to, to the gun range and being an expert marksman? Nothing. We need to change the narrative where what's more manly than meditating in the morning and yeah. freaking crying and being just relentlessly vulnerable. That's the narrative that needs to be out there that it's these are this is more manly than any of those things because it's way harder to do. It's so hard. It yeah. is so hard. So yeah, hard thing. So, man, I want to go back to your mindfulness journey and that dark spot that you were talking about. I'm not sure if it was Operation Red Wing or when that moment was for you, but can you go a little bit into more detail of that time of your life? Oh yeah, hundred percent, man. Um, so with, with operation red wings, um, the week prior to that operation, there'd been several Marines lost in that same Valley. Um, and we, we had, we had started planning the assets that we needed weren't available. The timing wasn't quite right, or didn't seem quite right. The planning didn't seem a hundred percent. There was, there was a whole lot of things wrong with that operation. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I raised my concerns with that. I was supposed to be a part of the, uh, surveillance and reconnaissance elements. So there was four guys sent in, they were supposed to observe a target for 24 to 72 hours, send information back. And then they were going to send an assault element to go and mount an assault on this compound or this village. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd raised my concerns. I'd been picked to, uh, be a, one of the potential leaders of that operation, uh, the, the reconnaissance element. And I, and because I raised my concerns about it, I was relieved. Um, and, and Michael Murphy ended up leading that operation. If you know the story, mm -hmm. it was the four guys on the Hill, Michael Murphy, Danny Dietz, Mark Luttrell, and Matt Axelson. They're there observing the target. Um, they were compromised by some goat herders, they had an ethical dilemma on the hill. Okay, what do we do? Ended up releasing these goat herders. Those goat herders run straight down the mountain, report to the, the compound in the village that there's some American soldiers up on the hill. They call them soldiers. They didn't obviously know. Um, send, the, send a whole bunch of their fighters up the hill. Massive firefight ensues. Um, communications back to higher headquarters was very difficult. And uh, Michael Murphy ends up grabbing his Iridium cell phone, which is, you know, a very small version of a radio and works off a satellite. And he gets back to higher headquarters and he actually gets me on the phone and tells me that he's got guys dying out there in the battlefield. Um, and can he get help? So I told him, yeah, absolutely. We're going to send you a quick reaction force, quick reaction force for your listeners who are not familiar with that. A QRF 
is basically your in extremis force, the, the guys who are going to come in should you need reinforcements. Mm-hmm. And these four guys needed reinforcements. And uh, last thing I heard on the phone was Michael Murphy saying thanks. And then he was shot in the back and, and died on the phone. And then we, we ended up sending in a quick reaction force, um, several helicopters, one of which ends up getting shot down with uh, eight more Navy SEALs and eight uh, Army Night Stalkers on, on, that air, on that bird. So ended up losing a total of 19 men that day, um, several of which, uh, several of whom were my good friends. Losing them as good friends was traumatic. That was the first time I, I'd lost, like I mentioned before, that was the first time I'd lost good friends on the battlefield. I knew about other, other men who had died on the battlefield, but I didn't know them personally. These guys I knew, I knew their families, I knew the kids. Um, and then um, on top of that, losing friends, I felt like a coward uh, because I said something about the operation, didn't get, uh, didn't get picked to lead the operation, didn't have the, didn't have the operation turned off, didn't have the operation delayed, didn't, didn't do X, Y, and Z. I felt like you felt responsible in a way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I felt responsible because I hadn't raised enough of a concern. And then, um, and then, uh, I felt an imposter syndrome and survivor guilt. And I mean, a ton of these things that I carried with me, but at the same time, I was like, well, I'm a leader. I'm an officer in the, in the SEAL teams. I've got to uh, do what good SEALs do. And that's continue with the mission. So that's when I kind of, I took all that crap that I was carrying and I boxed it up and I put it down in the basement to be dealt with later or never. Um, Turns out I did have to deal with it later. It it came, uh, one of my friends says, you know, when you box stuff up like that and you put it down in the basement, it goes down in the basement and works out. Yeah. comes back stronger. Yep. Absolutely. It and it came back with a vengeance. So absolutely. yeah, that was, that it, was it always the, comes uh, back. Always comes it back. It does, man. It does. Um, that was the, kind of the, the first, uh, real blow to, to who I was and who I saw myself as I, I had seen myself as what you described me as before. I was like, Hey, I'm this badass Navy SEAL. Yeah. And now I was thinking, Oh, no, I'm not. I'm a coward. All these guys around me are badass Navy SEALs. I, I don't belong with them. All the guys that died on that battlefield are badass Navy SEALs. I don't deserve to be alive because those men were better than me. Um, so while, yeah. while all these people are still looking to you for leadership and what yeah. do we do and what do we do next? Right. Right. Absolutely. So, man, I think I, I always like to dig a little deeper. And I know you have no problem with that. So yeah, when you it. were when you were dealing with imposter syndrome, with survivor's guilt, and maybe for those who aren't hundred percent sure of of what the story that John's speaking of, it's the it's the movie uh, Lone Survivor with with Mark Wahlberg, and just how emotional that movie was in a in a cinematic experience. Imagine being the guy at the other side of that that phone, man. And that was you. Yeah. What did your, what were some of those thoughts that went through your head? What did your day to day look like? How, how did that affect if, if it was me and I can't even imagine, you know, how would, how did that affect your life? Yeah. I mean, I was rattled for sure. Um, rattled by that, by that instance, you know, 
I know that the guy that I was just talking to is, is no longer with me. Um, or, you know, his fate was unknown. I, I didn't know at that point that he had been shot. I, I knew that he, he went away on the phone call. And then later I learned from Marcus that he had, he had died. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, I was rattled by that phone call, but then also the fact that I knew I had friends on that hillside that were fighting for their lives and there was nothing that I could do about it. Um, I was sitting at higher headquarters um, back in Bagram and I couldn't do anything about it. They were, I don't remember how many miles away it was, but it was, it was a several helicopter flight away and um, I, I couldn't do anything. We ended up spinning up those other helicopters um, and then, uh, you know, the, the rest of the fate we were already went through, but that yeah. particular instance on the phone, I was rattled. I was scared. I was, I was, I felt, um, completely useless, um, powerless. Um, and those were states that I was not used to being in. Um, because again, I mean, in all the training and in, in everything that they kind of put us through to become a, to become a Navy SEAL, you kind of prepare yourself so that if anything happens, you at least mentally think that you're not going to be scared. you think that you're not going to be sad. You think that you're not going to be rattled. Well, that's bullshit. Yeah. You you're do. Human. You, you're human. Yeah. You're human. You're still a human being. Yeah. And I think a lot of people watching that movie and i and i can't say this enough like you experience this is this is real life this is not a movie and you are human and people look at navy seals and professional athletes and spec ops and whoever it might be these warriors they see them as not human and they're dealing with the same shit that everyone else is dealing with and though not you know there's not be a movie made about it, but to be you know vulnerable with you and you know something that that I that I rarely admit is I had you know a kind of similar, not a similar experience, but essentially you know before Matt took his life, I was supposed to call him on Valentine's Day, mm. and I was sitting laying in the bed right behind me, right now, and I remember looking at my phone, and. I was like, man, I should really call Matt. And I was like, oh, I'm tired. And and at this mm. point, and at this point in his life, um, and I, you know, I've I've yet to yet to cry on a podcast, and my goal is to cry. So I think <laughs> I think it's coming. But, um, man, like, I was like, I don't want to talk to him because uh, because it's so he's so distant because mm. it's so there's so much tension whenever we get on the phone. There's a lot of silence, and so I didn't call him. And that would have been the yeah. last time. That would have been the last time I talked to Matt. He he committed suicide, he committed suicide six days later. So that's for me. You know that feeling hopeless and and feeling responsible. Although it's different circumstance than yours. I mean, it's that same guilt, right? Sure. And so that's the point of this: is that I promised myself that I would never not make that call again, and I would never be afraid of the silence and the awkwardness that comes from, from those conversations. So yeah. 
and you know it's part of those moments that that's leading me to having these conversations and to doing things for my own mental health showing vulnerability seeking counseling so after that moment and leading up to that transformative moment of your life kind of where did that valley take you and when was the point where you knew that you needed to go seek help yeah that that valley one first off that was that was brave brother to share what you just shared um so so i applaud that i applaud your vulnerability and in applauding your vulnerability i'm applauding your strength um but now to answer your question the the valley um i think i sat in the bottom of that valley for a long time without realizing it so i uh i came back i actually flew back to the states with um with danny deets and michael murphy their bodies their remains um, incidentally, I flew back with a, a seal who died years later in another um, kind of freak accident, not, not, in, not in combat, not in training. Uh, Matt Leathers, he, he and I escorted the, the two guys back. And uh, two of the three uh, that were on the reconnaissance, Matt Axelson's body had not been found yet. Um, flew back to Delaware. I remember um, I love my Marine brothers and sisters. I love them to death. Yeah. Um, but I, I, uh, I landed the, the seals don't, were not great about grooming. Uh, so I had a little bit longer hair, a little bit of a beard. Mm. I was in civilian clothes and I met this Marine at, at Delaware, which is where most of our bodies, when we bring them back, they, they fly into Delaware, Dover. Um, and this Marine in a dress uniform comes up to me. He's like, um, where are the escorts? And I was like, it's, it's me and Matt. And he's like, why are you guys not in dress uniform? And I, and I thought to myself, I was like, um, one, I didn't deploy to Afghanistan, a combat zone with a dress uniform Two, these are my buddies that I'm escorting back. I'm not just some randomly assigned escort. And I got, I got angry. I don't know why I'm going into all this detail, but I got angry. Yeah. I got over it real quick when I kind of understood, like he was wanting to honor our brothers who had who had fallen, but, mm-hmm. and he felt that we were disrespecting them by not being that way. Of course. But anyway, um, I'm just kind of laying the groundwork here. So went from that rented a car, uh, met, met, um, Michael Murphy's parents and his fiance, they were there. I think I'm pretty sure his fiance was there. I'm, anyway, um, got a car, drove back from Dover, Delaware to Virginia beach. I was married to, um, my ex-wife now, my, my first wife, um, didn't go to see her. I went to go see Danny Dietz's um, wife, mm-hmm. um, uh, now widow. And I brought her the flag that he had been brought out of the field under. So they bring, you know, body bags and the helicopters yeah. and they got flags on them. Mm-hmm. And I brought her this, this flag um, and let her know what, what had happened. And I let her know how, you know, everything that I knew about the operation. And then I, then, and only then did I go back to my wife and i didn't share anything with her mm-hmm. i got home and i acted like i'd just gotten back from a day's work mm-hmm. not from a deployment where i just lost a whole bunch of my friends mm-hmm. and i did that because i felt that again was what good seals good combat warriors do. husband good husband good husband yeah, yeah like yeah, shield yeah. i wanted to shield her from it i remember her specifically saying something and i was like look i can't talk about it to you you wouldn't understand and instead of like being open about it and, mm-hmm. uh, and talking it through her, which 
did nothing but hurt our relationship and hurt me and hurt her as individuals. Yeah. Um, so the valley that I was in, I don't think I realized I was in that valley again until years later when that crap came out of the basement after having worked out and it crushed me. It caused me um, suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to be hundred percent honest, it, it caused yeah. me some very dark thoughts, caused me this feeling that, um, I didn't belong to be here. I didn't belong here on, on, uh, on this planet. I didn't yeah. belong in this life. I didn't deserve this life that I'd been handed. So, um, yeah, a lot happened. That Valley took me a lot of places and I was in it. Yeah. So, and I don't know if struggles, the right word, but I find it difficult to differentiate between suicidal thoughts and being suicidal because I mean, I've, there's times, there's a number of time after Matt's death, um, where there's like three nights I didn't sleep and I was like, man, I wish they could all, I wish I could wake up from this nightmare and that this would all, yeah. I was all jacked up on ambient. I still couldn't sleep and all, yeah. so, all sorts of different things. And so do you like, do you, do you feel like you, this led you to being suicidal or was it, was it suicidal thoughts? I think, I think it started as suicidal thoughts that ended up, uh, becoming, coming worse, uh, yeah. becoming to, to truly, um, to a decision coming, coming, coming to an, coming to a thought about, okay, what, what and how and when, and you know, what should I do to provide for my, uh, my, my family, not, uh, not my ex-wife because of that now at the time, uh, I was divorcing, you know, going through the divorce, but, yeah. um, my, my brothers or sorry, my brother and my sisters, my mom and my dad, that family, I was like, what should I do? I did not have any kids at the time either. Uh, so I think it took me from suicidal thought to being very close to taking that next step. Um, yeah yeah and so do you remember the moment when you were like this is it i need to go get help yeah um yeah i was uh sitting on on my bed um i had uh i had i did not have a gun in my hand but i had a gun in the closet loaded and um there was a thought like I've got, I've got two options. I can walk into that closet and get that gun and do that. Or I can walk out the door and call for help. And it took me like, it's, it's kind of a, um, embarrassing and sad, but again, this conversation is all about vulnerability, but to, it took me longer than, you know, five seconds to think that I was like, okay, well, if I go into the closet, get the gun, this is what's going to happen. If I go out into the, I actually thought I was like, that's the easier option. I Let's just I, go get the gun. That's going to be it, easier. I think it is the easier option. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, I don't remember what it was, but something clicked in my head. And I was like, okay, I've, I've got to, I've got to go out that door and call. And so, uh, I called, um, Funny enough, I called the uh, Military One Source website. Okay. Um, so that's why I'm such a big proponent of these. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, so Military One Source and the and the suicide hotline, 
and they put me in touch with a counselor and that that counselor put me in touch with a local counselor and uh and got me to where i am today so yeah and words cannot explain how happy overjoyed i am that you made that decision you made the harder decision to go get help yeah same yeah i'm sure yeah so and i I look i look now thinking back then that i was in a completely um helpless spot thinking that i had no reason to live and i look now you know i started the conversation off talking about my three kids and my beautiful bride yeah um they wouldn't exist right uh well my my bride would but my my three kids wouldn't wouldn't exist yeah yeah i wouldn't have i wouldn't have had children um and you know the the people that they're going to affect with their lives they wouldn't have been around to do that so it's uh the compounding effects of taking your life they don't only affect the living around you they affect generations afterwards um and i and i do say that knowing friends and uh and colleagues who have taken their lives and I'm not trying to say that they were quitters or that they were weak no, at all. No, uh, no. Obviously, you know, with your brother, I'm not saying that either. I want of to be completely not. sensitive to that. Of course um, not. it is just a, it is a state of mind where you think um, you, you're not thinking rationally and you, you end up making yeah, a, a poor, a- poor decision that is permanent. It's a permanent decision. And it's impulsive. And I think, you know, in to your point, you know, being sensitive about the topic. I mean, I think that is incredibly sensitive. And I think the important note to make there is that, like, people are like, man, that when they killed themselves, that must have been so hard. Or like, you know, but that's the easy, that, that part's easy from what they've been through that. But it's seeking help and it's being vulnerability. That's the challenging part, but is what is needed it's needed i mean suicide is not should not be an option and vulnerability is how we eliminate that being an option and it'll always be a thought but it can't in my opinion we need to work to make it so it's that's not even a choice so 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 how did counseling and mindfulness how did that pull you out of of that moment in this deep 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 valley that you were in yeah well i had gone to counseling in the past i'd gone to psychiatrists in the past i had been put on various medications in the past anti-anxiety antidepressants um but i didn't quite know what i was dealing with i didn't know what to talk about so these sessions they were they were therapeutic but they weren't near as effective as they could have been when I met this counselor who recommended and introduced me to mindfulness meditation, and I started practicing after um, some in-depth practice and after several months of practice, mm-hmm. it's not something that happens right away, but several months of practice, I, uh, I saw what it was that was truly causing the problems. And it wasn't what I was talking about at counseling. You know, I would go into counseling and talk about something that stressed me out that day where I'd go into counseling and tell them about something that was causing me anxiety two or three weeks down the road. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't tell them about, oh yeah, I'm feeling like 
a quitter or a coward or an imposter. I wouldn't, because I didn't even know that. I didn't, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that I felt that way you, until yeah. I did the mindfulness meditation and kind of peeled back these layers of this onion. Mm-hmm. And I saw what was inside of it. And I was like, oh, maybe I should take this to counseling and talk through it. And once I was able to know what it was I needed to take to counseling, that's the meditation was absolutely the, the foundation for it. But the, it, it allowed me to make the, the talk counseling much more effective and productive uh, in my healing. So uh, yeah, that's how it started. It wasn't just the mindfulness and meditation by itself would have been helpful, yeah. but I think having the counseling on top of it was, was critical. Yeah. So when you started, when you started med- meditation and mindfulness, what were your initial thoughts? How did you start? And then how did that start to evolve? Yeah, great, great question. So uh, this is always one that I kind of laugh at because yeah, when yeah. the counselor, when he first, when I went in there and he's like, hey, have you ever tried mindfulness? And I was like, I don't even know what that is. I don't know what mindfulness is. And yeah, then, you, uh, and then he, what are you, a guru or something? Yeah, right. And then <laughs> then he's like, oh, well, it's it's like meditation. It's tied to meditation. I'm like, oh, great. Yeah. I've got real problems and you're talking to me about <laughs> sitting quietly with myself and my thoughts. Yeah, uh, yeah. No whack job. Um, I, you know, and again, this is the, uh, the old John kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tough, yeah. Of fake tough guy, false bravado. And I'm like, not the mindfulness no, I'm, expert. I'm this, yeah. I'm like, I'm this battle hardened Navy seal. Um, and you're telling me about some woo woo meditation. No. Anyway, I, I, I laughed at him and he could see that I was not taking his advice very seriously. He's like, mm-hmm. look, okay, man, I get it. Here's the science behind it. And he showed me like, okay, what happens in your brain when you sit and meditate, how you tap into the parasympathetic nervous system, how you can calm down, mm-hmm. how the, the amygdala, which is the part of our brain, which is responsible for fight, fight, or freeze, how that actually shrinks. It doesn't go away because you still need it, mm-hmm. but it shrinks so that we don't perceive every single little thing that is coming at us as a threat, emails, social media, deadlines, traffic. That's, that's not threats. That's just life happening, right? So we end up responding more rather than reacting and we live more in a calmer state. I was like, okay, well, you've shown me some science, but who does this? Like, why, w- why would they do it? He's like, well, here's some very high performing individuals that do it. They swear by it. It improves their performance. Mm-hmm. And when he said performance, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. It improves your performance. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I'm a type A personality, badass, badass Navy SEAL. I'll get I want to improve sure. my performance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll try that. And uh, so um, went back home, downloaded an app on my phone. I downloaded insight timer, which funny enough, I actually have meditations on now as a meditation teacher, but I downloaded this app. Interesting. I'll have to look found, found, yeah. Found like the hour long meditation. And I was like, all right, boom, jump right into an hour long meditation. And I got about 30 seconds into it. And my mind was everywhere, but the meditation. And I was pissed off. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I knew it. Dude, I knew it makes this you meditation ang- stuff. When I started meditating, it made me so anxious. I was like, I was like, I, yeah. I was like, and I think that's the point. Obviously, is like, yeah. I was like, oh, I can't sit here. Like, I got, I got shit to do. Like, I, like, I, I got, gotta go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I've got, yeah. and you, and you convince yourself, you're like, I'm one of those people who can't meditate. Yeah. I'm too busy for this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went back. And I was like, yeah, dude, that I tried that meditation stuff. It didn't work for me. Uh, I'm too busy. Um, and he's like, okay, what, what did you do? And I told him exactly what I did. And he's yeah. like, well, that's like, 
that's like going to the weight room yeah and and jumping under 315 pounds on the barbell and never having bench press before Mm -hmm. or like lining up at the starting line of a marathon without ever having run a mile before so let's uh let's back it off and he and then he ran me through some just breath breath work nothing in depth no no like hour-long meditations he's like just try this like two minute breath work and i felt the difference similar to what we did at the beginning Mm-hmm. I felt a difference. I was like, okay, I can do that on my own. Yeah. And then I, and then I saw that there's tons of short little breathwork meditations out there. And I started doing those and I noticed the effects lasting longer and longer. And I started doing more and more of them through the day. And then I was able to work up to a, you know, a 10 minute meditation. And then I was able to work up to longer and longer meditations after about two months to two months, nine weeks, something like that. That's when I, I kind of was like, okay, I get it. Yeah. I see the difference. I feel the difference. Yep. And I was performing well too. So he wasn't wrong on that, that sure. side. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think for the listeners out there and what I realized in, in my own life is this meditation is similar to like a TV series that like you might've started and like people are like raving about it. Like, dude, you got to watch this. You got to watch. It starts off slow and you're like, dude, this sucks. Like what? And you get, and you know what I'm saying? And you get, and you get, you get bored of it or, or a book or something like that. And then when you revisit it that second time, yeah. It's like, and you, and you, it's a great analogy and you sit through those, you know what I'm saying? You sit through those couple episodes and then it's like, then you get into it and it's like, wow, this is a good show. The same thing yes. with, me- with meditation. I remember the specific moment in my life and it's a small moment that I realized that, Hey, meditation is actually working as I was sitting at a stoplight for like way too long, and like, <laughs> like way too long. And like in the past I would have been like freaking out, like probably like honking my horn, like like literally probably physically yelling because I was like, I've got places to go. Yeah. I took a deep yeah. breath and I was like, hey, it's all good, baby. Like this light, will ah, turn there green. you go, man. Like, like this light will turn green. And I was like, huh, that might be the meditation that, that did that. And then, yeah. and then I've seen significant, and when you don't do it in the morning, that's why I've, I've made it that it, I start my day with it. When you don't do it, then it's like, you're catching up to the day every single moment instead of being, you know, that's right. in, instead of being in front of your tasks. Right. One of my buddies says like, Hey, if he doesn't start his day with a meditation, he feels like he's being shot out of a cannon yep. and he can never catch up. Mm-hmm. Whereas the days that he does start like uh, the meditation, he feels like he's walking into his life. And I, I was like, yeah, that's spot on. That's how I feel exactly the same. So absolutely. Yeah. So, so f- for the listeners and we only have a few minutes left here, how would you suggest they start and then maybe give a couple of resources? Because I think your story and where you are now today it's evident that meditation works and people need to try it so how do they start well i I would be remiss if i didn't give myself a plug with our our podcast mental don't worry i was i was setting up up the back i'll set up the backboard for you there there you go man yeah Yeah, so men talking mindfulness that's uh that's uh we talk about all the things the barriers that get in between men or anyone and mindfulness it started out as a show for men but it's really for anyone now um and then uh there's a ton of great apps out there so i, I recommend trying them and seeing what works for you insight I use timer calm. i use yeah, calm. calm calm yeah. is great insight timer uh waking up uh 10% happier um there's there's a ton of them and you know figure out what works for you but what i definitely recommend is don't jump right into the deep end Mm -hmm. jump in kind of get your toes wet um and and just start with some simple two three four minute breath work uh meditations and get started to see how it works 
and then start lengthening that. And then give yourself some grace when you start getting frustrated in the middle of a meditation because your mind has wandered off to your to-do list or because you think that you don't have time for it. That's a natural thing. Your mind is going to think thoughts, just bring it back over and over and over. And that's where the magic and the rewiring, physiological rewiring actually happens. So don't beat yourself up. Don't walk away from a meditation and say, well, that sucked. That was a complete waste of time. Any meditation is a good meditation. It's like any workout. Yeah, that's right. Like any workout, you're still getting better and and pushing through and getting stronger physically. Um, It just takes a while. It's like meditation and mindfulness is the exact same as exercise. It really is. It really is. is. Um, Man, what a awesome conversation that we've had. Thank you so much for the man that you are, the friend that you are, the mentor for your vulnerability. Thank you genuinely from the bottom bottom of my heart. Last question for you. And I asked this to all the guests, what does the 38 challenge represent to you? Well, definitely your brother, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's a, that's kind of a no brainer there, but the, the legacy that you're, your brother um, inadvertently has left behind is going to save lives through the 38 challenge. And that means a great deal to me um, because there are people like myself when I was in that dark spot and I was considering dark options um, who need the resources that challenges organizations like the 38 challenge provide mm-hmm. and support and show that, you know, they, they need organizations that show that they care. And, uh, that's, that means the world to me. So yeah, I love what you're doing, brother. Absolutely. Keep it up. Absolutely. And you know, you and I will always be there for each other. We'll always, I will always promote you and the men talking mindfulness podcast and you know, I, I'm a I'm a listener myself, and it's helped me a great deal. So thank you as well. Um, my pleasure, man. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Like I said, thank you for being the vulnerable warrior and the vulnerable leader that you are. So John's got to go take care of his cat. So we got That's to right. uh, we, we got to end the pod. But um, <laughs> hey, thank you so much, man. I love you, brother. Um, and back at you, man. Yeah, looking forward to saving lives together. Amen. Amen to that. Amen. Thanks, Brent. Of course.